When you buy Kroger brand products, you feel like you're winning. That's because they offer proven quality at lower than low prices. In fact, we guarantee that you and your family will love how Kroger brand products taste. Or you get your money back. So next time you're shopping for the family, look for delicious Kroger brand products. Because they'll make you all feel like you're winning. Shop now, in-store, or online. Kroger. Fresh for everyone. Get emotional with me, Radhi Devlukia, in my new podcast, A Really Good Cry. We're going to be talking with some of my best friends. I didn't know we were going to go there on this. (laughs) People that I admire. When we say listen to your body, really tune in to what's going on. Authors of books that have changed my life. Now you're talking about sympathy, which is different than empathy, right? Never forget, it's okay to cry as long as you make it a really good one. Listen to A Really Good Cry with Radhi Devlukia on the iHeartRadio app. Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. As the number one audio company, iHeartMedia gives you access to all. Every audience, live conversations, trusted influencers, and the insights and data you need to grow. iHeartMedia is your access company. Go to iHeartResults.com for more. Go behind the wheel, under the hood, and beyond with Car Stuff from HowStuffWorks.com. Hi and welcome to Car Stuff. I'm Scott Benjamin. And I'm Ben Boland. And today's topic is an exciting one for both you and I because it's another racing topic. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's one that uh, I believe you came to me with this one, right? Oh, yes. Uh, if only because it's going to be hilarious to hear us try to pronounce these words since neither you or I speak Italian. Is that correct? Uh, that's extremely correct. You're going to find <laughs> uh, many misspoken words here in this podcast. Try, try not to hold us to uh, too many pronunciations mm-hmm. in this one, but uh, there, it starts off with the uh, with the name of the track that we're talking about. Uh, you want to you want to hit us with that one? Yeah, I'll take a swing at it. The Autodromo Nazionale Monza. Not bad. Well, thanks, Scott. Uh, the Autodromo Nazionale Monza is home to the Italian Grand Prix. It's got a storied history. Now, we've done some podcasts on other famous racing tracks and venues, right? We did the Nürburgring. Sure. And, uh, Indianapolis. In the Indianapolis. Yeah, yeah. So. And, uh, oh, we didn't, there's been a couple others along the way, I think. Um, I can't think of any of the top of my head right now, but I think in our past, you know, Mm -hmm. we've been doing this for years now, so. I know we've got other tracks that we've talked about. If nothing else, then, you know, we've gone off on a sidebar, a tangent of some kind, and, and talked about, uh, you know, these different tracks at length, so. Um, this is just another one of those, but this is going to be a full a full topic, I guess, right? Yes, a full topic of the tracks, the highs and lows, the history, the evolution, and uh, some of the controversy maybe end in the modern day. I understand you have a little bit of a surprise at the end of this show. Yeah, maybe not a surprise so much, just uh, kind of an interesting little side note. So I've got a few of those along the way that I think people are going to be interested in. And um, I, I think, you know, if we just call it Monza from now on. Let's yeah, call it, let's just call it, it the Monza. Just, just the Monza or Monza or something like that. Let's just keep it simple. How about that? All can right. We, can we agree to that? We uh, agreed, sir. All right. And uh, they, yeah. And it takes its name from the city, right? Yes, it does take it na- its name from the city. Uh, this track opened in 1922, and it's located near Milan. It was built by a place, a group called the Milan Automobile Club, and they did this to celebrate the 25th anniversary of their founding, which was in 1897. Yeah, and and Monza is a city itself. It's a mm-hmm. it's a it's a commune, which uh, and and not like we're thinking of commune. Commune is a uh, is what um, they call a munis- municipality or a township or a small community in uh, in Europe. So um, you know this is it's near Milan. It's its own little area, I guess. Right, it's a little enclave. Exactly. It's uh, a, not a commune in the sense of a bunch of people. Growing local flowers and trying to move things with their No, minds. nothing, nothing like that. Everybody wearing the same shade of uh, pink or, yeah. or red. No. Not that there's anything wrong with that if that's what you want to do. <laughs> but we digress. So why did Milan Automobile Club want to create, uh, the Monza in the first place? Uh, well, it turns out that way back in the days of yore, uh, the Italian Grand Prix did not have a permanent venue. 
Yeah, and uh, you know we'll find as we as we talk about this that um, you know Monza it's known for the Italian Grand Prix. It's known for being you know kind of the uh, the home of the Italian Grand Prix. Although the first Italian Grand Prix was not run at Monza. Mm-hmm. Um, that was uh, that was in 1921 uh, when it was held at a Brescia track, uh, and that's the first Italian Grand Prix, not necessarily one that stuck around because that was the only time that they ever ran there. I've got a a, a map of uh, Italian Grand Prix locations, as a matter of fact. You want me to just mention it right now? Yeah, yeah, right. All right so. All right, I, I guess I can kind of mention where they were running when. Uh, Brescia was the first one in 1921. Of course, we mentioned that uh, Monza opened in 1922, and that was the second location. But then it does go away from there again back in 1930, in 1937. Um, it's run in uh, Livorno. And in 1947, it's up, moved up to Milan. Uh, it goes back to, um, no, it goes over to Valentino Park in 1948. Back to Monza again from 1922 to night. It skips all around. You know what? I've got my dates mixed up here because of my, uh, my, um, uh, my map is a little bit jumbled up. It's just a black and white map that's pretty small. But um, anyways, it skips all over Italy. There are actually eight different locations uh, going back to Monza for, um, I guess, position number two, six, and number eight, uh, if you want to think about it that way. Mm-hmm. Um, because it does jump all over the place, and there's a few different good reasons why the the, uh, the race was moved around. Now, initially, you know, the Monza track wasn't ready in 21 right. uh, when they wanted to run the first race. It was a Grand Prix race. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, because we mentioned, I think, in our, our Formula One podcast that uh, Grand Prix racing was the predecessor to Formula One racing. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, Monza... Actually ended up having their, their first race at Monza was on September 10th, 1922, and it was the second Italian Grand Prix. Mm-hmm, exactly. And, uh, you know, they held on to it for, for quite a bit of time there, because 1922 to 1936, and then, of course, we'll talk about this too, but the war happens, and then it comes back in 1938, and then it comes back again in 1949, all the way through 1979, and there's a skip, and then 81 through the present. So, mm-hmm. since 1981, it has been run there. So, for, you know, for you and I, for most of, you know, when we've been paying attention to racing, I guess, you know, our, our ages, our age group of people. Sure. Um, for you and I, we're accustomed to seeing the Italian Grand Prix run at the Monza track. Mm-hmm. The Monza won out against the other seven competitors uh, for tracks. Now, what's interesting as well, during the war years, this is just a side note, during the war years, uh, Monza was used as storage for a lot of military vehicles. And I think, you know, I you and I are kind of history buffs with some of this stuff, and it's really interesting to see how um, even something as innocuous as a racetrack gets transformed because it gives us a sense of how totally um, and completely affected Italy was by the war effort. Uh, we would also, let's see, let's talk about the original track. So in the early days of Monza, 1922, we already said their first race, the track originally was about uh, 6.2 miles long, um, with a almost three mile loop track and around a three and a half mile road track. Uh, for our friends across the pond, that's a four and a half kilometer loop and a five and a half kilometer road. But there's something interesting about the pavement here, right, Scott? Yeah, that's right. There's a, and I'm gonna maybe mix up the name of this even, um, the, the type of road surface. Um, how, how do you pronounce it? We were talking about this, uh, yeah. we were talking about this uh, right before we jumped into recording. So please, listeners, help us out. We're gonna try it a couple different ways. Okay, Scott, I'll say, uh, Macadamized. <laughs> Macadamized. And you'll maybe. say macadamized? It's, a, it's macadam is the type of road construction uh, that, that this thing was made of. And if you know anything about the macadam uh, road surface, and we're just going to stick with that pronunciation, I guess. <laughs> okay. So if you, if, you, if you know anything about macadam type of road, I mean, it's a, it's a type of construction that was pioneered by the Scottish engineer. His name was John Loudon Macadam. Uh, macadam, rather. And that was around 1820. So this goes way, way back, right? Yeah. And um, what's interesting about this is if you if you really think about what we're saying here, this is a road. This is a road surface on a on a racing track that. Um, and now we we talked about it may have tar on it, but it's basically a semi paved road. It's like a it's like a gravel surface road that's yeah. uh, i mean it's it's locked in place it, it's it's firmly in place uh but it's individually carved stones that are fitted to the track surface and 
and it's in a weird way. I mean, it's very, very specific about how this thing was was built. And again, the Macadam Road thing is really pretty interesting. Um, the idea is that it's it covers a a, a soil surface, like you know, like a um, just a dirt tr- dirt track sure. normally, yeah. uh, with a very, very light coating of gravel. And the the gravel has to be laid down in a very specific manner because up up until this point. Uh, any road surfaces that they had paved or tried to pave this way or with gravel, they thought that the, they had to have this enormous base of, of, um, of concrete and, and crushed stone and, you know, just this, it became a real, real complex process. Well, uh, this John Loud McAdam, uh, decided that, you know, it can be done in just about, in, with an, about eight inches of thickness. Yeah. And it's very specific. I mean, it, it, it has 75 millimeter, 55, or 50 millimeter and 20 millimeter layers. And all these layers are checked by supervisors that actually carried scales to measure the stones as the, as the workers did this. And the workers did this by, you know, sitting on the side of the road with a hammer and chisel, breaking bigger rocks into smaller rocks, the appropriate size rocks. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, loading them onto the surface one shovelful at a time so that they all fit together individually and they were packed down. Um, it's just a really interesting thing. And, and workers, Ben, to find the right size rock, they would test the stones. They, the, the way they could figure out if it was like a six-ounce stone, if they could fit it in their mouth, it was a six-ounce six stone. Yeah, I read about that. And that's, that's, an, that's an odd quirk of this whole thing is that, you know, these workers sitting on the side of the road chiseling and then fitting, you know, stones in their mouth. I don't know if they actually did that or not, but that's a good rule of thumb, I guess. There had to be at least uh – there, there were at least a few guys who did that because I've read that story as well uh, with, with the – Rock in the mouth thing, man. It's just gross. Can you and, imagine how dry your mouth would be at the end of the day or even uh, halfway through the day? I just it's, mess it's up a, your teeth, it's too. A terrible, terrible but, thing. But so six miles. Yeah, six miles of this type of surface. And you, you said that it may have been tarred. It may have had a, a light layer of concrete on top of right, it. Right. Yeah. Now, we have to also consider that at the time, this was high end technology. If mm-hmm. you imagine the cost here, uh, the work began on May 15th. They had. 3,500 workers, uh, and that's just, those are just counting, you know, the hands on deck as they build this. And as people can tell by our description of the pavement, this was an incredibly work-intensive, I'm going to go out on a limb and say incredibly expensive process to have hand, it's a hand-cut racetrack, essentially. Absolutely, and that, uh, and by the way, that uh, that oval track, that loop track that we talked about, Yeah. Uh, if you look at a map of Monza, you can still see the old loop track, and, and portions of it still remain on the property. It's not used anymore, uh, but, the, but the banking on that track, I mean, banking is incredible. If you watch anybody who has made a trip to Monza, because you can still tour the, the track, and you can look at the, uh, you can actually walk on part of the uh, the old curve track. The old, uh, um, I'm sorry, the uh, the oval track, and uh, it's it's a struggle to get up to the top edge to the uh, to the, uh, the the guardrail. Uh-huh. Um, it's very very steep. It's almost like um, you know when you see someone at Daytona or something at Daytona International Speedway, and it doesn't look all that dramatic on on television. But when you see somebody trying to get out of their car or walk up to a car that's you know stalled on the top, it's similar in the way that you know it just goes. It, Progressively goes higher and higher and higher. Yeah, uh, the banking gets steeper and steeper, and, uh, and it's really a, a challenge to stand near the top of this thing. So it was, it was created for extremely high speed, mm-hmm. even back in 1922. And one of the reasons that they be, that they went uh, to such extremes with the Monza was that the automobile club who started the construction really wanted to compete with the world class Grand Prix at the time. Mm-hmm. Which was the French Grand Prix. Yeah, that's right. And, uh, you know, of course, that's Grand Prix ahead of Formula One. Formula One doesn't come into effect until 1950. Right. So we're talking Grand Prix racing here at this point early on in the, in the whole thing. And, uh, and these cars, I mean, make no bones about it. They were fast. They are mean beasts. And they were big cars. They were powerful cars. Really, really powerful. I mean, we're talking, yeah. you know, cars with, you know, V16 engines or, you Ooh. know, straight eights or straight twelves even, you know, they, I mean, I'm sorry, not straight twelves, but, uh, V12 engines. And, uh, it just enormously powerful machines, really, really fast. These high bank turns. And, you know, of course, you can imagine that fan safety, uh, was a little bit lax back then, you know, that, uh, right. there were some, uh, 
I guess, boundaries that were pushed by the fans. We've talked about this so many times where, you know, fans, especially like the, the Group B fans, even all the way up through the 1980s, yeah. um, they just, they're all over the track. I mean, you know, it, it has a lot to do with the marshalling at the track and, you know, whether, what they allow, what they don't allow. And apparently at, uh, at Monza, it was a little bit lax on this. Now, I know that some of the stuff that happened there, there's, there's been some terrible, terrible accidents right. that we'll talk about, but, some of that has to do with, you know, the, the excessive speeds that are seen at Mon- Monza. Other, you know, a little other has to do with just, you know, that, um, you know, maybe the, uh, the safety precautions weren't in place like they should be, but, you know, probably were changed immediately after, you know, the day after. Right. And that's a, that's a good point because it, while it may, I, I read a really interesting article about this in, I believe it was, uh, the Independent or maybe the Guardian. Is the Guardian actually? I've got it here. Uh, where they asked if people were more callous back then because there were some, um, there were some incredibly catastrophic accidents. Uh, I guess we'll go ahead and let the cat out of the bag here. Uh, in 1928, the driver Emilio Matarazzi uh, collided with the grandstand uh, at at a super high speed. And he was killed, as well as 27 spectators. Yeah, 27. That's a huge number. Now, I've seen numbers that back that down to 22, maybe. Yeah. But, uh, but still, I mean, most, most accounts say that it's 27. Now, um, I think that, it's, man, something like this car was coming down the straight and uh, swerved to the left, jumped over this three-meter-deep trench, uh, and then right into the right into the grandstand, so it, it wiped out a bunch of people along the way. It was a horrific scene, mm-hmm. uh, something that really we hadn't seen at, at, to this point. You know, this is what 1928, I think you right. said. So I think the only other thing in that league would be the Le Mans accident. Exactly, and that didn't happen until 1955, mm-hmm. I think. So that was uh, many, many years later. Uh, but to kill 27 spectators in in one. Uh, fell swoop here. That's, uh, I mean, it, it was so horrific that it, it canceled the Italian Grand Prix for 1929 and 1930. Uh, well, they tried to sort things out. Well, they tried to figure out, you know, is this worth running here? Is it, how are we going to make this safer for everybody? Um, cause it's one of those things that, you know, the reaction to this is, is strong, of course. You know, they're trying to figure out what, what they're going to do to keep the fans safe. Um, but they've got a track here, Ben. I mean, look at the, look at the map of this thing. It's, it's an, I mean, it's insane how long some of these straights are. It's it's a fast, fast track. Even in the world of uh, you know Grand Prix and Formula One, this one stands out even today. Yeah, uh, the, the current track is is equally dangerous. I mean, what they've done along the way is they've added some of these chicanes in the in the uh, in the meantime to kind of slow down some speeds. But um, I've read somewhere that you know, truthfully, this this whole thing they they say it has eight turns. Right. Um, you know, I, I see eight turns counted here, but, you know, some of these chicanes are mar- marked as uh, the turns. And I don't know if that's really correct or not. It only has three proper turns. There's there's three true turns here. There's yeah. these uh, turn four, five, and then eight are the only ones that I see as proper turns on this whole track. The rest are just kind of uh, areas where you would slow down, I suppose. Well, six um, is six is not really a turn at all. It's just sort of a, <laughs> a, a lazy curve. I guess, and so is two, and so is uh, you know the end of eight, and so is seven because that's just a little chicane. But you know, at the beginning, there's a there's this front str- uh, stretch. Yeah. You know, when they take off, and this one's really noticeable because it all, it's almost like. It's like two ninety degree turns, but it's really just a slow down area um, on the way to this long curve into two. You know, you have to look at the map to understand what I mean. To say it has eight turns, but really only three proper turns. Right, and each of these turns, of course, has their own name and uh, also has an accompanying strategy that the drivers have to adhere to. Uh, one thing about Monza that we should go ahead and continue here. Uh, you mentioned the chicanes, mm-hmm. which are put. Uh, there are bends in the track that are put there entirely for the purpose of slowing people down, as you as you said. They're yeah. not they're not there for anything other than safety. It's not something that the fans or the drivers will enjoy. No, it's not like they're keeping keeping. Uh, I don't know how to put this, Ben. Maybe the best way. They're artificial turns. Yeah. Um, it's it's a long straight. It's a, it's a slow down area. They're trying to slow the speeds down because uh, Monza is just it's a it's basically a flat out track, really. I yeah. mean, I read somewhere that that seventy five percent of the time. 
drivers are at full throttle on the track. I mean, 75% of the time on a road course. That's, that's incredible. I know on a, uh, you know, super speedway or something, sure. sure you can be at full throttle 100% of the time. But on a road course, for 75% of the time full throttle, that's amazing. And the cars are set up for extremely low downforce, uh, because they want, ex- you know, the, the extreme top end speeds, uh, that you'd expect, you know, at these long, long runs. So, like, just for example, they've got 25% less downforce than they do uh, on the same cars um, at Monaco. So let's say they take the same car to Monaco. They set it up with much more downforce because the turns are that much more drastic, and, and it's harder to get around. So they want this maximum speed, and speeds were getting up to, like, in the in the mid-2000s, Ben, when they had the V10 engines. Yeah. Somewhere around uh, 372 kilometers per hour, which is about 231 miles per hour. Um, is what is what the cars are reaching and now. I mean, ballpark right now, we're right around like 211 because you know they have these V8 engines now, the right. uh, the 2.4 liter V8s. Uh, so it's it's kind of rare when they get up to that 211 actually, but it does happen. That's about 340 kilometers per hour. But again, maximum speed on the Monza, and that's part of what makes it exciting to watch. Mm-hmm. Entirely, what makes it dangerous to be a spectator at. Yeah, and this is, of course, in line with tradition because even back in the 20s, uh, they were doing things like racing the supercharged Alfa Romeo P2, which had uh, 220 kilometers per hour or 136 miles per hour, and that's in 1920s. Yeah, that's extremely fast. Now, this, of course, the Matarazzi uh, accident, which um, did change the face of European racing entirely was not unfortunately the only racing accident in Monza's history. No, as a matter of fact, um, you know, I've got numbers here that are a little bit conflicting, so I'm just going to read what I have here and and see if this uh see if this makes sense. Um it's it's apparently this track. Now, this is this is a high death toll for this track. Yes, sir. 52 drivers and 35 spectators have perished at this track over the over the uh, over the years. And um I find some inconsistencies with both of those numbers. There's a little, I mean, I, I think there's a little bit off on each, in each case, but, you I know, too. I mean, 52 spectators, or sorry, 35 spectators, um, I was trying to think how that's possible, you know, with, uh, with one accident taking out 27 total. And then the other large spectator accident is when Wolfgang von Trips has the accident and, uh, 15 spectators were dead or dying but again there's some variance yeah there. see now i've got a number of 14 see that's the numbers are a little bit off on on all these death tolls but that was 1961 so again this another huge huge accident you can watch uh there's there's video of this this one happening um thankfully it's not too close you don't see exactly all the graphic you know of, of what's going on there right but, um it's a horrific accident again i think it was a ferrari that went to the crowd um and jim clark who was racing at the time was part of that accident uh part of that uh, was that they were headed into this uh curve Parabolica, which is uh, actually turn eight on the track, and uh, that's one of these really strange turns. Ben, this is uh, one that throws a lot of drivers for a loop. It's a, um, is it? A, it's an increasing radius turn. Yeah, so it's an it's an asymmetrical turn. Yeah, this is strange, and it's actually better than the opposite of this. If now. It, a lot of people, you have, to, you have to look at this to understand. A lot of people say that this is a dangerous turn. I think that it would be even more dangerous if it was the opposite, if it was a decreasing radius turn, because what you have here is that you're headed in the turn that's really tight as you come into eight, and then it it kind of opens up as you go into the stretch. Right. So it's easier to accelerate out of this thing. Of course, it's going to push you towards the outside edge of the corner. Uh, but if you were to do this the opposite way, you would get this false sense of security that you would be accelerating into the turn. And then tight at the end. And then extremely tight at the end. And that's, uh, that's even worse. And a lot of times that'll happen on, you know, uh, twisty mountain roads. You know, you'll find a lot of examples of that. Yeah. And, uh, that, that causes a lot of accidents. Get emotional with me, Radhi Devlukia, in my new podcast, A Really Good Cry. We're going to talk about and go through all the things that are sometimes difficult to process alone. We're going to go over how to regulate your emotions, diving deep into holistic personal development, and just building your mindset to have a happier, healthier life. We're going to be talking with some of my best friends. I didn't know we were going to go there on this. I'm going to go there on this because this is the 
with people that I admire. When we say listen to your body, really tune in exactly. to what's going on. Authors of books that have changed my life. Now you're talking about sympathy, right. which is different than empathy, yeah. right? And basically have conversations that can help us get through this crazy thing we call life. I already believe in myself. I already yeah. see myself. And so when people give me an opportunity, I'm just like, oh great, you see me too. We'll laugh together, we'll cry together and find a way through all of our emotions. Never forget, it's okay to cry as long as you make it a really good one. Listen to A Really Good Cry with Radhi Devlukia on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. What's up, everybody? This is Stephen A. Smith. When I'm not at my day job, first tape, you can find me in my studio hosting the Stephen A. Smith Show podcast. Tune in every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday at the very least as I bring you all new episodes that feature the biggest headlines in the world of sports, pop culture, business, and politics. You'll hear my unfiltered opinions on those nauseating cowboy fans, the chaos in Washington, D.C., and trending topics on social media, as well as my straight-shooter interviews with top celebrities and game changers. And I occasionally give out love advice. Yes, it's true. If you want to know my true feelings about something, I'll give it to you straight. So, listen to the Stephen A. Smith Show podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcast. I'm Hannah Storm, and my podcast, NBA DNA with Hannah Storm, digs deep into the history of professional basketball, along with my own as one of the first female sportscasters. Now let's get you up to speed on what else happened around the NBA today. We talked to all sorts of people I interacted with, from Dr. J to Charles Barkley, and recap iconic moments. Yes, he's got it. Here he comes. Ray rocked the baby to sleep and slam dunk. As well as some of the wild stories behind the scenes. We were like, what? What are we in for? The scoreboard crashes before we even tip a game off. Today, the NBA is a global sports and entertainment giant. Players are multimillionaires and cultural icons. Iguodala to Curry, back to Iguodala, up for the layup. Oh, blocked by James. LeBron James. And these stories are about how we got here, both on and off the court. And what's next? Listen to NBA DNA with Hannah Storm on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. It does, uh, especially considering that those people are not uh, professional drivers. Now, of course, I think we've already mentioned this, but when people prepare to race on the Monza, a huge part of that is playing the numbers and the physics beforehand with these turns. So these folks know what they're doing. There are, of course, always going to be concerns. I The death toll on this is high, but I don't think it's a, um, I don't think it's a product of negligence as much as I think it's a, it's um, an illustration of how much we've learned about safety. Yeah, I think that's true. I mean, because they've made uh, steps along the way. Every time something happens, they they react to it. Right. And uh, really, I mean, I know you can be proactive only to a certain point, and then you have to re- just kind of see what happens after that. And I know that's callous or that's a, that's a, a tough way to look at it, but, um, you know, look back at the look back at the footage, you know, from the uh, – the 1961 crash, even, um, you know, the the fans were pretty close to that uh, the track, and I mean, in a danger area, there was just a a small um, a berm, I guess, of of dirt, and right. uh, there was really no ca- big catch fence or anything like that. A small, you know, fence to keep the spectators back off of the track, but that was about it. You know, they've learned a lot over the years through racing. You know, what works, what doesn't work for fan safety. These proper runoff areas, um, you know, the, the, how much room they actually need. You know, with the speeds involved, because you know, I, I think all this stuff just kind of catches uh, race promoters and, and sanctioning bodies and everything off off guard. Um, you know, as, as they progress each year, it's like it gets more and more dramatic every year with the way the speeds increase. So, you mm-hmm. know, in 1961, they were a little bit caught off guard that you know something like that could happen. Um, and in 1928, yeah, uh, with the Matarasi wreck, I'm sure that they were caught off guard by that too. Like, who would who would think that it was going to jump a uh, you know um, jump a berm or a, uh, a dugout area and then go right into the crowd? Um, no one would think that would happen. But you know, looking at the track design, you can see where the high speeds come into play. I mean, it's it's yeah. just such a fast fast track and the track itself has gone through an evolution too now we we've sort of touched on or implied this but uh after 
let's see, after the hiatus in 29 and 30, when, when they come back, uh, they're still not completely safe because three other drivers die, Campari, Borzakini, and Zakowski. I apologize for those mispronunciations there. Um, but they, they didn't, uh, they didn't have an accident due to the construction of the track so much as the fact that there was oil on the track. And mm-hmm. then, uh, after, so still they're learning about safety. And then after the hiatus, the, uh, post 1948 hiatus, uh, they've already had a new course constructed. Can right? I, yeah, but can I mention something about this hiatus that we're talking about? Yeah. It's, it's World War II. And, um, you know, of course, World War II, what were the years? World War II was, uh, 1939 to, uh, what, 45? Sure. Okay, yep. that's, that's, uh, that's, yeah, I think that's it. 39 to 45. It was six years, right? 45-ish. Okay. 45-ish. Late 45, I think. All right. So, the strange thing about the Monza track is that it was interrupted slightly longer than the actual, than the actual war, and that's because of damage that was received. Now, right. now that, you know, you remember, you mentioned that it was a storage area, right? Yeah, it was a storage area for uh, military hardware for uh, part of the war, but also uh, it was receiving neglect, or it was neglected and was receiving damage from the heavy machinery. Yeah, because there's military vehicles that are traveling on the track. It's not really meant for that. It's meant for, you know, a single race car instead of uh, a tank to yeah, roll across it, right? So that's totally understandable uh, that they had some damage. So there was no race at Monza from 1939 to 1948. But they did race the Italian Grand Prix in 1940, I want to say 1946 and the 47, but uh, I think it might have just been 1947 when they came back. Uh-huh. Um, so Monza just wasn't quite ready yet. Um, yeah, 1947, it was run in Milan. So it was run very close by um, at another track, but um, it did make its way back to Monza in 1948 finally. Get emotional with me, Radhi Devlukia, in my new podcast, A Really Good Cry. We're going to talk about and go through all the things that are sometimes difficult to process alone. We're going to go over how to regulate your emotions, diving deep into holistic personal development, and just building your mindset to have a happier, healthier life. We're going to be talking with some of my best friends. I didn't know we were going to go there on this. (laughs) People that I admire. When we say listen to your body, really tune in to what's going on. Authors of books that have changed my life. Now you're talking about sympathy, which is different than empathy, right? And basically have conversations that can help us get through this crazy thing we call life. I already believe in myself. I already see myself. And so when people give me an opportunity, I'm just like, oh, great, you see me too. We'll laugh together, we'll cry together and find a way through all of our emotions. Never forget, it's okay to cry as long as you make it a really good one. Listen to A Really Good Cry with Radhi Devlukia on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. What's up, everybody? This is Stephen A. Smith. When I'm not at my day job, first tape, you can find me in my studio hosting the Stephen A. Smith Show podcast. Tune in every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday, at the very least, as I bring you all new episodes that feature the biggest headlines in the world of sports, pop culture, business, and politics. You'll hear my unfiltered opinions on those nauseating cowboy fans, the chaos in Washington, D.C., and trending topics on social media, as well as my straight shooter interviews with top celebrities and game changers. And I occasionally give out love advice. Yes, it's true. If you want to know my true feelings about something, I'll give it to you straight. So listen to the Stephen A. Smith Show podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcast. I'm Hannah Storm, and my podcast, NBA DNA with Hannah Storm, digs deep into the history of professional basketball, along with my own as one of the first female sportscasters. Now let's get you up to speed on what else happened around the NBA today. We talked to all sorts of people I interacted with, from Dr. J to Charles Barkley, and recap iconic moments. Yes, he's got it. Here he comes. Ray rocked the baby to sleep and slammed up as well as some of the wild stories behind the scenes. We were like, what? What are we in for? The scoreboard crashes before we even tip a game off. Today, the NBA is a global sports and entertainment giant. Players are multimillionaires and cultural icons. Iguodala to Curry, back to Iguodala, up for the layup. Oh, blocked by James! LeBron James! And these stories are about how we got here, both on and off the court. And what's next? 
Listen to NBA DNA with Hannah Storr on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Yeah, and since then, the uh, since then the organization and the venue have been continually improving both the the safety and the accompanying facilities of the track. Uh, if you go, if you check out their website now, they have an excellent timeline that we would recommend for everybody who wants more information. Now, of course, being the uh, official racetrack website, they're not going to go in as much detail about the uh, various tragedies that occurred. But I think we're giving them a fair shake by pointing out that, as you said, every time something happened, there has been a massive effort to address the safety and I, I don't think it's fair to call um, – I don't think it's fair to say that people were callous or whatever. I do take exception to that article in The Guardian. But I do think it's a good time to point out the nickname of the Monza. What's that? It's uh, – oh, gosh. Okay, here we go. I'm going to try some Italian, Scott. La Pista Magica. The magic racetrack. <laughs> the magic racetrack. It, it nice. kind of sounds like a children's book. Yeah, it does. You know, th- this is one of those tracks that I mean. Okay, it's in it's in Italy, right? It's in uh, it's in northern Italy. It's very close. I want to say that it's it's only a couple of miles away from Milan, right? Yes. Um, hang on, I'm, I'm struggling for my notes here, but um, oh, here we are. Ferrari headquarters are in Marinello, Italy, Italy, which is just a two-hour drive from Monza. So it's one of those tracks where, you know, when when the Italian cars roll out on the track for the Formula One uh, series, because, of course, you know, F1, after the war, we, we mentioned that in 1950, Formula One picked up. Yes. Ferrari's very much a part of that. And... Um, can you imagine the, the I don't know the chest puffery I guess I don't know what to call it really you know the uh, the pride you right. know when uh, when the when the Ferrari cars roll out there just two hours from their headquarters I mean you know that's a that's a proud group of people anyways that you know of the car that they produce you know just the, the of the nationality that's itself and of course they they they've won at Monza so many times Ben there's a uh, I've got the stats on on the drivers and and uh, the the constructors that have won at Monza over the years Oh before we get into that though I have to say Okay what's that You're wearing a really cool shirt Oh thank you very much I may have uh, picked this one up brand new recently I didn't yeah. want to really toot my own horn but you know mm-hmm. I've been doing some uh, some online shopping Oh yeah, where are you yeah. where are you going for that? I have been going to jackthreads.com to uh to kind of uh, spruce up the wardrobe just. Oh yeah, jackthreads.com. Mm-hmm. They're the ones with uh, all of the popular brand names like Penguin and Busted Tees up to 80% off. Yeah, that's uh that's why I'm there exactly because uh well brand names of course, but the 80% off thing is big. So up to 80% off. Okay, but I heard there's a uh I heard it's kind of exclusive. I heard well, there's a wait list. It is. It's a wait list and it's like a, it's like a club, but uh because you're a car stuff listener Anybody out there, all they have to do is just go to jackthreads.com slash car stuff. And uh, if you sign up today, you, you skip the wait list. You get right in because it's like a shopping club, right? And uh-huh. and who wants to wait around, I guess, to join these clubs, right? I mean, yeah. you get instant access because you know Ben and I. Mm-hmm. And uh, and you get it right in. You can buy any of these brands we're talking about, DC Shoes, Vans, Element, Adidas. We have, it turns out we have a little bit of pool on the internet, and uh, we are using that to grease the wheels for you. Oh, tremendous <laughs> amount of pull, and uh, and man, look, I mean, just amazing stuff. If you look around, all kinds of cool accessories, mm-hmm. sunglasses, hats, sure, jackets, whatever you want, hundreds, hundreds of uh, of brand names. I mean, it's really it's a cool place to look around. Yeah, let us know what you think, and especially if you have any recommendations that we should tell other listeners to check out specifically. On that website, Scott, I apologize for interrupting you, my friend. That's all right. We had to do it. We had to do it. It yeah, had to right. happen. Yep. It's a, it's a killer shirt. It's a killer. It, it really is. Killer, I mean, I, it really is. It's amazing. Yeah, I have so shirt you, envy. People need to see this shirt. I would buy that shirt from you. <laughs> so, uh, okay. so we're talking about yeah, uh, okay, yeah, some stats on the uh, on the wins. Now we've got drivers that have won multiple times, like Michael Schumacher, who was a driver for Ferrari, by the way. Yep. He's won five times. Uh, Nelson Piquet has won four times, and then there's eight drivers that have three wins, eleven drivers that have two wins. So you know, it's it's not uncommon for someone to come back and win multiple times, even if it's just a couple of times. Um, it's a tough track. Don't get me wrong. But the Constructors' Championship, this is where it gets interesting. And I mentioned the Ferrari headquarters, you know, being very close by, just two hours away from Monza. Right. Um, and from 1949 to 2010, I don't have the, uh, yeah, 2010, 
19 Ferrari Constructor Championships, or 19 Ferrari Constructor wins there wow. um, at Monza. And then McLaren is is in second place with just 10, which that's still pretty impressive. And then Alfa Romeo with 8, Williams with 6, Lotus with 5. You know, it goes down from there. But, um, man, for Ferrari to win on kind of its home turf 19 times in, in you know, uh, what is that, 51 years? Yeah. 61 years. Yeah. Um, that's pretty darn good. I mean, that's a good record. And that's, uh, that's top of the constructor championship. So, um, nice job. Nice job. And we haven't even touched, uh, too much on the motorcycles or the other races that are occurring uh, at is, Monza. This is going to lead into something that I wanted to talk about. It's kind of a sidebar, but okay. please, please go ahead. Uh, well, we know that the Monza is most commonly associated with the Italian Grand Prix with F1. But uh, what you might not know if you are not familiar with this racetrack is that it is world famous for its motorcycle races. And in fact, ever since the 20s, when it first began, it has also hosted motorcycle events. Mm-hmm. And it's it's strange because, you know, in some places uh, here in the States, especially motorcycles get a bad reputation. People will say that they're super dangerous, that they're unsafe to drive no matter how good you are, just because of the the physics involved and that, you know, you could be more vulnerable on a motorcycle. But there are far more automobile accidents with the Monza than there are motorcycle accidents. Definitely, yeah. And I don't know if that's just because more uh, there's, there's more auto racing going on there or what. I mean, maybe that's it. Maybe that's just the stats we're hearing. But, um, like, you know, just for example, mm-hmm. it's not nearly as deadly as would be, like, the, um, the Isle of Man TT. Oh yeah. For motorcycle races. I mean, you just don't hear about the automobile wrecks that happen on on the Isle of Man because the uh, motorcycle accidents and deaths overtake that. You know, that's the uh that's the news, right? Right. So yeah. maybe maybe that's part of it. Oh, and uh a sidebar to our sidebar. Everybody be sure to check out our Isle of Man TT podcast if you haven't yet. I like that one. I do too. I thought we did a good job. Yeah, that was a that was a fun one to do. Interesting okay. topic. And and you know, I I do have a sidebar, but I want to uh, I want to mention that, you know, the 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 Part of this whole thing, you know, with uh, with different series running there. Of course, F1. I just found this note. F1 is scheduled to uh, remain at Monza at least through 2016. So they've got a contract with Formula One through then. We'll see what happens after that point. I mean, the way it's been in, in years past. I mean, it can move anywhere in Italy. It looks like. Yeah. Um, there's a lot of different tracks that it can go to. Um, however, I think people are you know vested in keeping it at Monza because of the facility updates that we've seen. Um, you know, they've done some amazing stuff with the garage areas. With the uh, with the pit, yeah, the pit area, which are just incredible. I mean, really, really nice, world class facilities, and then um, you know the hospitality areas, and you know all the stuff that goes along with with hosting a uh, a worldwide event, really. Um, so, man, it sounds like I'm I'm selling the place. <laughs> but um, it, we mentioned that they do a lot of different types of racing there. Um, the Le Mans series is run there. Um, they've had, you know, Grand Prix motorcycle races. They've had World Touring Car Championship races. They've had Superbike World Championship mm-hmm. races. Um, one thing that, and this is going to lead right into my sidebar, and it's kind of like my last thing, Ben. So, okay. if there's something else that you like to get out there, I do want to, I do want to mention this one last race, and it, and it does lead directly into this uh, kind of interesting side note. Oh, so this is my speak now or hold your peace? I think maybe, yeah. Okay, yeah, all right. Know, we'll have a little bit of, you know, we'll have some okay. time at the end for some listener mail or something, but. <laughs> all right. um, but anything anything left to cover, Ben? Yeah, I just want to point out that um, although accidents have continued, uh, you know, into the seventies, um, even even more recently than that at Monza, uh, it is a world class facility. It's worth your time if you like racing, and you can go online right now and check out some of the action for yourself via YouTube. Yeah, there's uh, there's a lot of good footage. You know what? Uh, one one other little thing I guess okay. I just just thought of. I was watching some some clips of Monza, some in-car camera stu- uh, footage. Yeah. And there was some stuff from the 1960s with Jim Garner who was driving in a movie called Grand Prix. And uh, it was just kind of like the raw footage from this movie. Oh weird. And uh, it's really cool stuff. I mean, the cars are are just they're perfect. You know, they're exactly what you would expect from the, the early 1960s. It's the high bank turns, um, mm-hmm. really great engine sounds. It's really cool. Um, so, okay, getting back to my uh, my final thought here, I guess, maybe. Yeah, starting with and, the race, um, right? Yeah, starting with the race. Um, there, there was a race in, in, well, it's actually two years that it was held. It was in 1957 and 1958, and it was called The Race of Two Worlds. 
And the Race of Two Worlds is where they, they pitted USAC teams, which is the United States Auto Club, uh, which is a sanctioning body, versus uh, Formula One teams. And they raced oh. on the track at the same time against each other, just to kind of see who's better. It's kind of like a, it's like a U.S. versus uh, Europe type thing. Yeah, how did it work out? Uh, well, so it worked out that Americans won both races. Uh, Jimmy Bryan won in 1957, and a guy named Jim Rathman won in 1958. Now, Jim Rathman, this is this is where it gets into my uh, my side note here. All right. Interesting character, this Jim Rathman guy. He's, uh, of course, a drive, uh, racer. Um, he was the winner of the 1958 Race of the Two Worlds that we mentioned at Monza. He was the winner of the 1960 Indy 500. So shortly after that, he won the Indy 500, which is a big deal to me. I think a lot of people, really. Yes. And he was also the driver of several pace cars at Indianapolis 500, invited back as kind of a guest driver um, many times because, you know, he's a professional driver. Sure. So he drove the pace car. I want to say... Uh, the record say something like five, but there's kind of this weird thing where he drives under the caution periods now. You know how they do this thing where, you know, they, they bring out a celebrity to drive for the, the pace lap, the first yeah, lap? Yeah, like throwing out the first pitch at a ball game. Yeah, exactly. And then under the caution, they bring back somebody who's a real driver, a real race driver, mm-hmm. to drive the pace car during the race. Uh, well, Jim was that guy for a couple of times, so I think officially he's done it about seven times. Okay. So, you know, he's he's got it my, you know... I don't know. He's got a lot of experience behind the wheel at Indy and, and other places. I mean, he's a very successful driver. Well, later, not much later after he was, uh, you know, involved with all this, uh, you know, Grand Prix racing, USAC racing, et cetera, over in, uh, over in Europe at, at the Monza, he opened up a, um, a Chevrolet dealership here in the United States and it was called, uh, Rathman, you know, Chevrolet Cadillac. It was in Melbourne, Florida, which is just south of the, the Cape, uh, of Cape Canaveral. And uh, I don't know if you know where I'm going with this or not, but um, no, I'm gonna I'm gonna let you go. All right, so this is possibly Ben. This is why it's interesting. Okay, possibly this is the first dealership to offer the U.S. astronauts the car deal that they offered them. Remember the one dollar lease cars? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So if if you don't know what that is, General Motors for a short time, for about a decade, offered U.S. astronauts automobiles, two of them maximum, for one dollar a piece, like a lease. Mm-hmm. set up for $1 a piece each year. And what these guys would do is normally they would they would lease like one family car and then one Corvette for themselves to get yeah. back and forth to the base because you know these guys they're they're adrenaline jockeys these guys. They uh all all these astronauts. Right. And they also don't get much time to party. No, not a whole lot. You know, they're they're busy, of course. Yeah. And um and it's a know, pretty good deal because I the the Corvette's so much less likely to be wrecked by an astronaut because they'll be spending a lot of time in <laughs> space. No, I don't know about that, Ben. Cause, I, know, uh, I know, These guys, there's some, there's some funny tales about these guys kind of going out into the back, uh, backwoods areas in Florida there and drag racing and, you know, so having nuts. lots of fun. You know, it sounds like it was a, a good time for all of them, really. But, um, supposedly, Rathman's dealership was the first dealership where this happened, where it, where it occurred, where they allowed them to lease these cars for $1. And, um, you know, of course, they're not allowed to give gifts or anything like that. That's why the $1 sure. charge. They, yeah. can't, they couldn't endorse anything. Um, and a lot of these guys were getting, um, you know, like the, the maximum type core. I guess just top of the line, top of the line, full maximum options Corvette. So they're getting like, you know, the Roadsters with the, uh, the 427 engines with, you know, 435 horsepower, just amazing Corvettes, beautiful Corvettes. And of course, now they've got history attached to them. All these Corvettes do. So, like, yeah. you know, Gus Grissom's Corvette is in some museum somewhere in Arizona, I think. And uh, you know, Neil Armstrong had a couple of these, and you know, Alan Shepard had a Corvette or two, and um, you know, all these guys that that were part of that early space history here in the United States had a Corvette that was given to them by most likely Jim Rathman at this uh, at the Chevrolet dealership, the Chevrolet Cadillac dealership. That's a so, fascinating connection there. Yeah, yeah, it's pretty neat. I mean that, you know, and it was just kind of a spin-off from this whole Monza thing, but sure. but when you come across something like that and, it, and I encourage listeners to go and look up um, you know, the uh, US astronaut program and the Corvette connection because there's a lot of really cool photos of these guys. In fact, you know, like a lot of of time life um uh, great, you know the great big photo stories that they would do. A lot of them are these guys posed in their in their Corvettes together, all mm-hmm. kind of in formation, you know, all That's together cool. and signed at the bottom. It's really interesting. They did that from like the early '60s until 1971 when they ended the program. Because as soon as the moon uh, the moon landing programs ended. That's pretty much when this program went away as well. And I think there was some public uh, outrage as well, which mm-hmm. I don't quite understand that. But people were upset that they were offering these kind of deals to the astronauts. I 
That's very strange. I, I find that strange too. I think uh, for what these guys were doing, you know, serving the country, serving serving the world, really, if you want to look at it that way. Yeah, that, totally. You know, space exploration. I mean, these guys, they deserve some perks like that. And, you know, they couldn't take it for free, but for a dollar, GM felt it was a good investment. Yeah, let me not sound like a jerk when I say that it's a fair trade. You get a really nice car, granted, but still, you get a car because you strapped yourself onto the nose of a rocket and shot yourself into space uh, to help humanity figure out what was up there. Yeah, it's totally fair. Uh, I totally agree. And you, you know should what? have I, houses. And I applaud GM for doing what they did, too, for, for offering that kind of deal. Now, I know it was a tremendous amount of publicity for them. Sure. It was a really good PR move on their part. But also, I mean, that that's the image that I like to see, though. You know, these uh, these these astronauts that are going to the moon that are also driving, you know, top-of-the-line Corvettes here on, on Earth. Yes. Um, pretty amazing. Good stuff. And I think what we're going to do now is go ahead and close out, ending on that high note. Uh, yeah. Maybe a, a, a little uh, apology to any astronauts uh, currently listening to the show. And uh, anybody that speaks Italian, because, man, did we butcher oh some Italians. Yeah. Ooh. Italians and astronauts are going to be sending <laughs> us some crazy mail. I right? have trouble ordering at Italian restaurants, even. So that <laughs> really, a, yeah, this was a uh, this was a hill to climb. Are you like, me. I'll try the spaghetti, <laughs> spaghetti, spaghetti? Oh man, no, nothing okay. like that. All right, well, we're not that bad. We did give it a shot, and listeners, we hope that you have enjoyed our episode on the history of the Monza. Uh, this is again one of the most legendary tracks in Europe. It's safe to say. Uh, and if you would like more information, you can check out their website. If you'd like to learn more about all things that fly, drive, or float, why not check out our website, which is brand new. We're very excited about it. It's carstuffshow.com. And if you see something there and you're thinking, hey, Scott, Ben, I have a great idea that you should write about, uh, drop us a line on Facebook. Send us a tweet on Twitter. And, uh, Scott, where should people uh, send their mail if they just want to email us directly? They can send us a note to carstuff at discovery.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit howstuffworks.com. Let us know what you think. Send an email to podcast at howstuffworks.com. Get emotional with me, Radhi Devlukia, in my new podcast, A Really Good Cry. We're going to be talking with some of my best friends. I didn't know we were going to go there on this. (laughs) People that I admire. When we say listen to your body, really tune in to what's going on. Authors of books that have changed my life. Now you're talking about sympathy, which is different than empathy. Never forget, it's okay to cry as long as you make it a really good one. Listen to A Really Good Cry with Radhi Devlukia on the iHeartRadio app. Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Hannah Storm, and my new podcast, NBA DNA with Hannah Storm, chronicles my six decades in professional basketball, from growing up in the sport to becoming one of sports TV's first female broadcasters. Join me as I dig deep into the game's history, unearth some wild stories, and talk to my friends from the world of basketball, from Dr. J to Charles Barkley. It's been a wild ride, and now I get to take you with me. Listen to NBA DNA with Hannah Storm on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Tamika D. Mallory. And it's your boy, my son, the general. And we are your hosts of TMI. And catch us every Wednesday on the Black Effect Network, breaking down social and civil rights issues, pop culture, and politics in hopes of pushing our culture forward to make the world a better place for generations to come. Listen to TMI on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. That's right. right. 